This is The Other 14 Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of The Other 14 Podcast, the only podcast that forgets all about the so-called Big Six and focuses just on the other 14 teams of the Premier League. It was a game week of big results, with Villa well and truly establishing themselves as a contender for those European spots with an absolutely fantastic win over Newcastle. And then both Bournemouth and Brighton upsetting the big six with some absolutely tremendous performances. This week, as always, we're joined by Tom. Hello, Reese. Hello, Tom. Tom, this week, again, some excellent results from the other 14. Um, but I want to ask you, what team were you perhaps most disappointed by this game week? Um, I know there's a number of teams that desperately need points, but once again, still not turning up. I think one of the big disappointments I think this week was Newcastle. Um, I know obviously Villa have been playing well over the last sort of coming um, sort of last few game weeks, and very much on a on a fantastic run of form since basically like middle of February. Um, Newcastle in the middle of a titanic battle for top four, um, especially amongst the likes of. Spurs, Manchester United, and dare we say it, Aston Villa with the rate they're going, and potentially Brighton, of course. Um, but the way that they just sort of were overrun, and especially a lot of when you make the comparisons between how Newcastle played against United a couple of weeks ago, for them to just basically look an absolute shell of a team um, at, at Villa Park, just it, that was uh, probably one of the more disappointing um, performances I think that I've seen out of this Newcastle team all season. You know. Even before like the likes of you know the defeats that they have they've had against the likes of Liverpool and City, that really wasn't the best, I think, of Newcastle at all. No, not at all. And I think a right to reflect on their result against uh, Manchester United the other week when they looked so strong and then periods. Yeah, absolutely. And we thought it was going to be a lot of a, a lot closer game than it actually was in the end. It was always um, going to be a tough game for Newcastle, but it was. it was just it it was a bit I wouldn't say anticlimactic, but yeah. It was still a spectacle. It was, dis- it was disappointing. Absolutely. Um, first things first, before we get on to the other topics of the match week, over to you, Tom, with the classified results. There are the classified results for match week 31 of the Premier League 22-23 season. Aston Villa 3, Newcastle United 0. Southampton 0, Crystal Palace 2. Everton 1, Fulham Three, Wolverhampton Wanderers two, Brentford nil, one, Brighton and Hove Albion two, two, AFC Bournemouth three, three, Leicester City one, West Ham United two, two, Nottingham Forest nil, two, Leeds United Liverpool late kickoff. So Thompson, uh, interesting results, shall we say? this game week uh, and some results that we definitely weren't expecting. Um, I think maybe the one I want to delve into first time is uh, Bournemouth. So we always talk about how Bournemouth don't get back-to-back results and they haven't had back-to-back wins this whole season in the league. However, they shocked absolutely everyone with an absolutely tremendous result at 
the new shot Heart Lane. Yeah, absolutely fantastic performance from, from uh, performance from Bournemouth. You know, you look at the reverse fixture from a couple of months ago. This was where Bournemouth went two 0 up at home, and um, ultimately spurred to come back into it and win three two, pretty much ride the death. Um, obviously, Bournemouth now come away with an away three two win, but very very entertaining game. Spurs pretty much did their usual Spursy uh, and bottled it, but Bournemouth, like you said, looking for their first back to back win, back to back wins of the season coming through against the Spurs that were pretty all over the place to be fair at the back. Um, and Bournemouth to win it right to death, I think, just sums up the the fight and the spirit that Gary um, Gary Neal has installed into um, into this Bournemouth side. It's absolutely working wonders. And that's now three wins in four for this Bournemouth side. Um, you think maybe potentially a little bit more work left to do um, to class them fully as safe. But I don't want to chance it, but that goal from Atara is the one that keeps them safe. Yeah, I, I think looking at the game, I think you're right. Spurs shake it the back. They've obviously got talent going forwards that you've always got to be uh, be aware of. Um, Son's think, only in form. Yeah, his form's come out of nowhere. I think when looking at the game, I was obviously they had the Bournemouth had the lead, and then very late on, Spurs brought it back to two all, and I was like, oh, that's disappointing. They could have really had, deserved all three points here, and then bang, that late-minute winner um, is absolutely tremendous. And as you say, perfect revenge for their defeat to Spurs um, at home, uh, 3-2 also. Um, so absolutely tremendous. As for their points, as you point out, I think I think there's starting to be enough of a gap between the teams. It's the fact that they keep picking up these little wins here and there. Well, um, where the teams aren't. Yeah, exactly. So if you look at their form, they've, as you say, three and five. Well, three wins in five, that is. Um, but look at that's more win. That's as many wins as the bottom five together in the last. And they've got 25 games between them. So clearly something's going very right for Gary O'Neill. And I think looking at the table, looking at the fixtures, I think I said last week, I think 36 points is safe. And I think that's very much the case that Bournemouth win one of their next two games, then there'll be a Premier League team next season. Um, against everyone's probably judgment at the start of the season, I think most people were sure that Bournemouth would go down, particularly after that result uh, against Liverpool and then the yep. sacking of Scott Parker. No one, I don't think people were particularly convinced by Gary O'Neill's appointment. And it seems that that was the case with the board, with the fact that the new owners coming in, they didn't appoint him immediately as the permanent manager. We were saying this from the start. Yeah, well, we said give him the chance and mm. it was a bit weird that they didn't appoint him. And then he went on a good run while he was temporary boss. They were made permanent and it kind of stagnated and they dropped down yeah. the table again. And then, boom, nine points in the last four games and you kind of think, oh, you're safe, lads. Out of, it, out of the teams down there, they've they've just climbed and climbed and climbed each week now. Um, and they're putting in much gutsier performances than a lot of the other teams down there so I think Gary O'Neill's done a wonderful job and uh, Bournemouth are very much safe yeah I think that there seems to be a, a chemistry and a, an identity about this Bournemouth side you know they, they work hard for each other very sort of attack minded you know they, they, they can leak some goals every now and again um, but I think with the one thing with this Bournemouth side that I don't worry about is compared to lights you know the likes of a Southampton or a uh, or Nottingham Forest, for example, is that the fact that they do score goals? Um, and 
you know, you've mentioned about the fact that that 36 point mark might be the one just to finally get yourselves over the line to sort of, at the end of this sort of marathon relegation battle that we've had to finally sort of cross that line. 36 obviously effectively means one one more win for Bournemouth. You look at their next three, they've got West Ham, Southampton and Leeds, all three teams very much in that same sort of battle. So there is the potential there for at least one of those games for, for Bournemouth just to pick up the three points and just say, done for the season, move on to the next one. Absolutely. It's, um, and yeah, um, I think, yeah, in terms of their running compared to the other teams down there, I think what they've got in terms of big six, they're playing Chelsea and Manchester United, but at the Vitality, which you wouldn't put it past them. And no. then their other five games are all against teams down in the battle. Don't get me wrong, some of them aren't easy for the likes of uh, going away to Selhurst Park for them, I think will be a challenge. But realistically, they're, they're going to get two, uh, easily two more wins from their remaining um, seven games. So it will not be a problem for them at all. No. Um, another team that decided to take a big six scalp, um, as you phrased it last week, <laughs> the Graham Potter derby, um, even though Graham Potter is not involved with either team these days, Brighton just doing Brighton things, right? Is that is that the verdict we can take from that Saturday kickoff? The verdict that I have from this game and I've written down here, Brighton look like what Chelsea want to be. Yes. Um, and I Brighton just were there, you know, they, they came to London last week um and got robbed by VAR and, and refereeing decisions. Um this time come to London again and this time just purely played Chelsea off the park. I don't think that's too too much of a stretch. You look at the, some of the stats, Brian had 57.3% possession um, against Chelsea at the bridge. 26 shots on goal, 10 on target, compared to 8 on goal and 2 on target for Chelsea. This this was just domination from, from, from minute one. Chelsea, yeah, were slightly fortunate to get into the lead, uh, a deflected shot from Conor Gallagher, but you never... You never really feared for Brighton. You just you knew that this Brighton side would come together and just pick up the points. And pretty much an emphatic winner in the end from inside to the 19-year-old Paraguayan. Who's, I think that's his second uh, second time on the score sheet this season. Um, just fantastic performance from Brighton. And a double over Chelsea, which he, I think, well, definitely easily the first time that they've ever done it in the, in the club's history and first time they've done it in the top flight. Yeah, it, it was a remarkable performance from them. But it's one of those that you look at and go, well, they've beaten a big six side. But you're not surprised by the you result. You are not are surprised you? at all. It's no. one of those that you look and go, like looking at Chelsea's form, it's truly dreadful. They've got two points from, they've they currently got relegation form. They've got two points, I was from, say this, like, two uh, points from their point, last five. At what point do we mention Chelsea in the relegation battle? <laughs> In all fairness, being 11th, they're not that far off. The fact that Palace have climbed so quickly and are that close to them, only being three points behind them out. Chelsea aren't yeah. at their golden 40 mark, but as I said, I think 36 is probably enough. So they are just fine. But a, I suppose it's how far they can fall because for the rest of their season, they've still got to play Manchester United. They've got to play Arsenal. They've got to play Man City. Uh, <laughs> they've got to play Newcastle. So... Ouch. They're, they're challenging games. I think they've probably got every reason to be concerned that they might end up finishing around the 13th, 14th place mark. Um, and let's be honest, Frank has been... It's not a good appointment. 
looking at the other four, looking at recent weeks for the other fourteen against Chelsea, Brighton beat them, Wolves have beaten them, Villa have beaten them, Everton got a point from them, um, Southampton beat them, and that's only going back to February. They yeah. they've got. I suppose this is the difference. Chelsea have no cutting edge going forward, while Brighton are sharp as anyone else in the league at the moment in terms of... Oh, you just don't you don't want to play Brighton. You see it on the fixture edition, so oh, it's going to be a tough game. Like, or if you look at Chelsea and just like, well, yeah, whatever. Yeah, just Brighton's attacking prowess, the way they've got the right players who just know their jobs and execute them so perfectly. Looking at the likes of March, Mitoma, McAllister, even Danny Welbeck's come into a bit of form, hasn't he, when he's just yeah. popping up when... Admittedly, had one wrongfully disallowed against Tottenham. And that's what I think was quite good about this game. They've gone to Chelsea and got a result um, and they fully deserved it, like they deserved the result last week against Tottenham where they were robbed. So I think for the fans and the players and almost deserve to go, oh, we earned that, I deserved that, we're a good team, I think it's just remarkably Even good more for them. deserved that. Oh. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Sorry. Well Sorry. done. Well done. Um, sorry. Um, um, but now no, you sort of adapted onto that about Brighton. Um, I think one of the things that I mentioned, I think way back in like one of the previous shows, was um, Brighton's home form um, sort of over the last sort of couple of seasons, and especially last season. I think they only picked up like five wins all season um, at, at the Amex. They've got seven wins already this year in the. You know, the sort of return for, in terms of goals and, and goals conceded is by far so much better than, than last season. I think that's one of the big things that really sort of helped them this year is just basically looking sort of semi-competent at home. Yeah, the, their home form, let's, I'm just going to take a dive into it now. Um, in terms of recent results at home, they got the good result against Brentford. They beat Palace. They beat West Ham. Um, they... Um, beat Bournemouth, they beat Liverpool. It's just become that fortress where they just don't really lose many. And as you say, it's uh it's a remarkable turnaround for them. And yeah, I, I think any team going there, uh, although it's postponed this week, um, Man City were due to be going to the Amex and that really has title implications there. It does. So you can't be think, a really good game. Exactly. Uh, and the way that Brighton play, there'll be a challenge for Manchester City, there's no doubt about that. I think my only concern for how far Brighton can go this season, because they're still in the chase for those European spots. Um, they've got a couple of games in hand over Villa who are above them now. And they're going to have another one after this weekend because Brighton are in the FA Cup semi-final, which we will talk about later. Yeah. Um, it's just because they're going to have so many catch-up games because they're already yeah. two behind the teams around them. They're going to be three behind them by the end of this game week. And it's just whether they can just keep on ticking on of midweek, weekend, midweek, weekend, which is what you need to do if you're going to be in European competitions. But oh, yeah, exactly. It's, for a, it's, a, for it's a long, exactly a dress rehearsal, isn't it? Yeah, but for a long league campaign, is yeah. going to be, it isn't easy for them. And they've still got some tough fixtures, um, but good on them. And uh, absolutely tremendous. It, it's always nice when you see, uh, particularly Chelsea, with the way that they've conducted football over the last couple of years, seeing a team like Brighton that, do everything pretty much polar opposites to Chelsea and exceeding yeah, I mean, at it in such a tremendous style. I think I even saw like I think Bowley came out today um, and basically fully addressed the squad and just called them all embarrassing. Which you know that's, that's a great motivation, Todd. Well done. Todd Bowley said this that they're embarrassing. Apparently, Apparently. He, he's the one that blew he's the, the one that bought. Ball. Ball. <laughs> oh, he's 
Todd, I'd love you to come onto this podcast because you're a muppet. Could you imagine a one? Uh, yeah, just a, a sit down interview with Todd. That's an exclusive for us. Our first yeah. exclusive, and it's yeah, Todd let's get Bandit. let's get Todd on. Todd, so tell us why you bought Chelsea for spending a huge amount of money, and you're wondering why it doesn't work. It's almost as if at football you don't need a team of expensive individuals. You need a level of team cohesion. Mm. Are you and aware so- of the concept of relegation? Well, maybe. Well, that's the thing. Americans are wowed by the concept of uh, relegation. Maybe he wants to test it out, yeah, uh, just to see what it's like, see what the drama is all about. Or maybe he realizes that if they get relegated to the championship, they might might win some more games down there. So... Yeah, championship championship sounds better than Premier League, doesn't it? Or, it's the championship. Or obviously, because he's uh, he's American. Um, maybe maybe he doesn't realise that there's not a draft. Maybe he thinks that now Chelsea can bin off the season. If they finish quite low, they can get a high draft pick. Chelsea are tanking. Yeah, he's intentionally they're intentionally losing to try and get the latest yeah. talent through. Um, unfortunately, it does not. It work doesn't work like, like that. that. Absolute absolute melt. I'm sorry. Yeah. Turning around to your team and going, you're an embarrassment. You can't turn around and say that as the owner. <laughs> like if you look at like Ewok. Badashlai, um, Mudrick, like he spent so much money. Uh, Enzo Fernandez, like it's absolute. They in January they could have spent a good amount of money on just three players and they would have improved. And I think just any three of the million that they bought probably would have made them more successful than they are. But the fact they've signed so many has just caused so many problems. And then the reappointment of Frank is, it's truly awful, isn't it? It's, he... it's, it's a tragic state of affairs, but we couldn't oh. care less because it's just so funny. Well, I find it funny on the fact that see how many of the other 14 now can finish above them because yeah. obviously it's quite close between Fulham, Brentford and Chelsea at the moment. Um, apparently there's something in the water in West London. Um, oh, that mid-table that mid of, the, of the league is very much West London vibes. Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, moving on from Chelsea, um, let's do a bit more celebration of the other 14. Um, so yeah, as we just mentioned, Brighton in an FA Cup semi-final with their tie against Manchester United this weekend. Um, United without Rashford. United without Rashford. And to be honest... Uh, Not in a great form. No, and their centre-back partnership for the game will probably be Maguire and Lindelof, you would imagine, based on the fact that Varane and Martinez... Maguire did look very shaky in those opening stages of the Forest game. Maguire was that, yeah. He the early yellow card made him look a little bit shaky. Mm. Um, so you know you've got to think if you're Brighton, just take your game, take your like game approach that you have been taking every see every game this season. You wouldn't weirdly you wouldn't say Brighton are massive outsiders, would you, for this fixture? No, and when it when it comes to other fourteen, I I, I don't really like saying it, but I th- I think it's just sort of a little bit of truth. Um, when you are one of these sort of from the outset from fans sort of looking in like a the underdog uh for example up against the likes of united um or even getting this far into like the semi-final stage i think what we said that the second time ever in their in their club's history yeah or third time in their club's history absolutely um the likelihood of it sort of being on a more consistent basis you have to just take this opportunity with open arms and just say we might not be here for for quite some time after that. Um, the no way the, direct, the direction all. and the trajectory that Brighton are going, you like to think not because they they seem very well settled now in in that in this sort of part of the, of the table and well established sort of the next sort of team up or below these sort of uh, the big six. 
Um, you've just got to take this with open, with open arms, as I said. And United not being in the best of form, as we've mentioned, it's so, we've probably jinxed it. We've probably jinxed this all now, and, and United are going to. Well, I've just looked at the wins, odds. But Apparently, Brighton are favourites for the game. Oh, I. Oh. Which I don't I, dislike that. I don't. I don't hate. I could just imagine Danny Welbeck against his old team nodding yeah. one in. Um, but you do think about United do have injuries. Yeah, and like some quite significant ones. In all fairness, like three of their four starting back line are out. Rashford obviously being out. Um, Brighton haven't been shirked by the big occasion this season. No, absolutely not. And that's what I hope it doesn't affect them this time around. That mm. they go into the game and they aren't concerned. They just stick to their regular game plan. They don't get put off by the occasion. They don't go, "Oh, this is Wembley. This is fancy." They just yeah. go, "This is a team we need to beat." Once again, for them to win the FA Cup is a very much another challenge. The fact that they would then have to step up and play Manchester City um, or Sheffield United. But I'm going to be truthful. Realistically, it's probably going to be City. It's probably um, City in the final, yeah. But I think, yeah, Brighton have every chance to succeed here. And you'd blooming love it, wouldn't it? Another 14 in the another other 14 team in a uh, domestic cup final would be absolutely well, tremendous. Yeah, I mean, going along the lights of what in recent years you've obviously had Leicester, you've had Watford, Palace, Villa uh, had one against Villa, yes. Arsenal, um, Hull, Hull, but, but that's going back nearly nine years ago now. That's um, fourteen, yeah. Um, but, the likes of Wigan, obviously. Yeah, and even the first, like League Cup performances, we had Newcastle earlier this season yep. in a great shift to get through to the final there, um, and maybe the occasion got a little too much for them, and they had obviously. Uh, goalkeeping issues but for for Brighton absolutely go for it it'll be hopefully if they take the approach to that game that they took to Chelsea at midweek and what they took to Tottenham um not Chelsea midweek Chelsea at the weekend and Tottenham the weekend yeah. before they're gonna it's gonna be a really tricky game for Man U oh yeah yeah I don't I don't think Ericsson Hall is looking forward to this in the slightest oh not at all he uh He's definitely going to be drilling his team blooming hard this week to make sure they can deal with Watford's uh, Watford with Brighton's attack. <laughs> Got Watford on the mind. Yeah. Um, and then going on to more cup competition chat. Um, let's chat a little bit about West Ham. Um, over the last, well. They're the one of the teams, like Crystal Palace, like Bournemouth, like Wolves. Um, they're part of these four teams that have kind of broken away a little bit from the rest of that kind of bottom nine. And I suppose Leeds are still uh, coming up as well. But West Ham have joined the other teams in hitting that 30-point mark. Um, had a great game against Arsenal, apart from the first 10 minutes. And no one, I don't think, after that first 10 minutes was expecting West Ham to come back and actually be possibly pushing for the win in that game. But they No, did. you feared for them a little bit. Absolutely. When those uh, first two goals went in early, it's kind of like, oh, well, let's preserve their... Because uh... they do have one of the strongest um, goal differences down on that part of the table. So you kind of think, well, try and preserve that. It's very that much damage limitation, yeah. Exactly. But turns out that the team had actually showed a bit of depth, a bit of character. The crowd actually turned up for the game all things that kind of really haven't been present in a West Ham performance this season. For the Were most you there part. for that game, Reese? I wasn't there for that game. Um, to be honest, after the first 10 minutes and they were 2-0 down, I was quite <laughs> glad that I wasn't there. But fortunately, I was able to watch it um, 
on TV. But I think this is maybe showing signs that this team does want to fight for David Moyes and they do want to fight for Premier League survival. And unlike other teams, they're not just prepared to roll over and take a beating. Yeah, exactly that. Um, you know, four points clear of the drop uh, drop zone now with a game to, uh, game to spare. Um, and, and like you said, after those sort of first initial opening stages of, of that Arsenal game where effectively, you know, West Ham basically parted like the Red Sea um, and Arsenal just basically, yeah, played through them um, so easily. You did did definitely sort of fear for them. But the way West Ham just sort of fought back, if it... <sighs> They are they are picking up points. Um, you do sort of still keep a little bit of an eye on their their running. Um, let's have that get that up. So yeah, obviously Bournemouth next, which is going to be a crucial game for both teams. Um, and then obviously at home to Liverpool, then away to Palace, and then away to City, uh, and then at home to United. Those next sort of few games, I think, could be the. Oh. Either the final nails in the coffin, or the the thing that pulls West Ham firmly clear away. So I think it's kind of interesting because I think Bournemouth West Ham is just going to be a really good game between two teams that both. Well, West Ham have had a bit of a change of form where they're starting to look a bit more promising. Yeah. They were well, West Ham's away out. form goes against them. True, um, it absolutely does. Uh, and then home to Liverpool. Liverpool, a team that's only won once away in the league in 2023. 13 points out of a possible 45. That's before tonight against Leeds, um, which isn't fantastic. No, not at all. So you kind of look at that and go, well, maybe they could... If they if West Ham were to get a win against Bournemouth and then a draw against Liverpool, or vice versa... Safe. Yeah. And yeah. then the rest is kind of like, well, just see how it goes. Um, with yeah. fixtures. Palace, obviously, running really well. Away at the Etihad, you never know, they might have another say in the uh, title race, but to be honest, it's Haaland. Do you, you write any team off so against them lot? My question would be, if you were to see West Ham safe, like you said, over these next two games, you pick up a win against Bournemouth or a, a win against Liverpool, vice versa, four points out of those two games, and West Ham are pretty much safe and, and still very much in... Um, a fight in Europe no matter what those other results happen for the remaining part of the league season does David Moyes stay in his job um, there's a different question between does David Moyes stay in his job and do I want David Moyes to stay in the job um, I think the general feeling amongst fans is regardless of what happens this season David Moyes changes needed, change is needed. I'm still massively on the fence about that. I think if West Ham were to win the Conference League, it's really hard to turn around and say the manager that has given you your first silverware in a bloody long time. European silverware as well. European silverware. And turn around and go, oh, well, thank you, but um, we're, we're going to look into other options. It... I I suppose it comes down to who is the alternative. And I, I really like David Moyes. I want him to be a massive success. I just think at this point that there's such a huge amount of the fan base that aren't behind him that it really makes his job difficult. It's um, irreparable. Yeah. And looking at 
it depends how they finish the season, right? If we were to go and win, how, um, so we've got eight games left. If West Ham two were to go and win six of them, suddenly everyone will be back behind Moyes if the quality of the performance is there. Um, I just think there's... It is strange what a few wins does. Exactly. Um, I'm just... Least, yeah. I just don't think that there's a lot to be made up there. And I think most West Ham fans would be comfortable with the C in the back of him. Mm, I'm not that comfortable because I'm not sure what else is out there on the market and who's available. Yeah, I, I think it's always in these sort of, Yeah, I think it's always in these situations. You know, you, you um, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. So yeah. I think I think I it, think it's always I, greener because you kind of look and when people go, oh, but Brendan Rodgers is available, uh, Graham Potter is available, and it's like, well, yeah, okay, they have had their good moments. Brendan Rodgers won the FA Cup with Leicester and such, and Graham Potter was also a very good coach, and Graham Potter was really good with Brighton, but people don't go. Oh well, actually, Graham Potter got sacked from Chelsea because of poor run, uh, like a poor run of poor performances, mm. and Brendan Rodgers got sacked because Leicester were in the relegation zone. Yeah, it's really easy to look at the successes and not where the potential downfalls are. Um, I'd say my my gut feeling is I would I really want Moyes to make it an absolute success, and I would love a dynasty of him if it works well and they we play good football. This season hasn't been a reflection on what we want. Um, and that's what makes it difficult. I think it'll be even harder for the board to make a decision and he'll be forcing them to make a really tough decision should he win the Conference League. Because that is that is really tough. Um, and then you're speaking of the Conference League, uh, they had their first uh, leg of the quarterfinal on Thursday where they drew 1-1 away at Ghent. Oh, um, performance away from home. I don't think you really ever knock in a two-legged affair. You don't really ever knock a draw away from home, do you? No. Um... In, in any stage of European competition, I think you're always unless it was a oh you're three nil up and do you end up drawing three all? In which case you go that's a missed opportunity. Don't but, remind me of Christian Ball. Yeah, but realistically, if you're away from home first time in the first leg and you get a draw you're not really going to be upset with that. And I think taking that draw to the London Stadium, where things, particularly against Arsenal, sounded yep. particularly great, you you fancy them to make that uh, make that semi-final stage, don't you? I think that's the thing. So West Ham obviously went into the lead in that game. Danny Ings got um, a, a late goal in, into basically stoppage time in that first half. Then again for whatever, maybe a tactical switch or, or, or whatever, but suddenly sort of ignited into the game and West Ham were very much on the back foot and it was just basically like, do what we can. Do our absolute darndest just to try and keep hold of this one. Or Obviously, away goals don't mean anything anymore in, in European football. So it's, it's just purely about just trying to hold on. Um, and it, that will be very much the case going into, into the home leg. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's, obviously it's not a point, it's a draw. Um, um it's still very much all to play for, taking them back to London Stadium, where I don't think you've lost at all in Europe this year. You've won all your games in, in at um, home. We've won all our games home and away, apart from Ghent was our was the first kind of blemish on our record where yeah. we drew. Other than that, well, we are undefeated in the Conference League this season. Uh, so, our home form has been yeah all wins. So, so yeah, your 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 home sort of form has effectively led the London Stadium to become some for uh, yeah somewhat of a fortress. Um, and if you sort of look at the other results in, in that sort of conference league, 
Um, obviously, got Anderlecht beating AZ Alkmaar by two goals to nil. Basel drew two all with Nice. And then uh, Lech Poznan were absolutely smashed by Fiorentina by four goals to one. Fiorentina um, are the team that I think is most dangerous. I know West Ham are the favourites, but yeah. Fiorentina are a very good side. Fiorentina are a very good side. And I'm just getting up the Serie A table now. They're only ninth in the... Um, I know, but they've been really... In Serie good. A. They, They've been really free scoring in the conference league. Yeah. Um, but Italian teams this season in Europe just seem to be very much the, the vogue thing at the moment. Mm. Um, so you, you do sort of have one eye on, on Fiorentina. Obviously, the, the draw between Basel and the, those two good, solid European sides. Um, it is all set up very well. Um, and I just, suppose yeah, the benefit is for West Ham, they will only meet one of Basel, Fiorentina or Nice only in the final. Yeah, what's the, what's the path again for the semi-finals? So their their draw is the against the Anderlecht fixture. So it's Anderlecht okay. the um Alkmaar. Alkmaar. So yeah, yeah, that that's who one of those teams. And at the moment, West I think that's going to form. So Anderlecht the stronger team out of that, obviously. And, the, obviously and to be honest, Anderlecht weren't particularly good in the group stage where West Ham played them. So you kind of got to feel positive about that. But yeah, yeah. in terms of the future of David Moyes, um the conference league makes it very complicated. It would feel very harsh for West Ham to go on to win the Conference League, survive, and then Moyes basically being told to pack his bags. Because I think if you were to turn around to West Ham fans at the start of the season and go, and I think as I said the whole way through, you're gonna win you're gonna win European silverware and you'll stay in the Premier League, I don't think many people would have turned that down. But your exact words were seventeenth. Yeah, and I stand by that. If yeah. West Ham were to finish seventeenth and win the Conference League, that would be a good season. And I know it's been grim, it's been a bit ugly, but it looks like it could be on track for, I think survival for West Ham is more than doable at this point, because I think their run is maybe slightly better than the teams around that are down there. And they do have now that points buffer, six points on Leicester, four points on Forest, and particularly Forest's running is wonderful. Yeah. It's probably taken that defeat to Newcastle to really sort of shake things up. Um, and finally, sort of some attention. It's, it's is, interesting because you say defeat to Newcastle, and it was defeat, but it was a gift wrapped. <laughs> they they gift wrapped the points to Newcastle. Truly, yeah, absolutely awful, awful, awful play from West Ham. Um, I yeah. think it's quite telling that Aguerd hasn't had a game since. Well, I mean, you know, like, like we said, I think three Moyes has just gone back to back to the non the back non summer signings. Yeah, yeah, and I think that faith has been repaid. I think. Um, Soufal, probably against Arsenal, had one of his better games yep. at the weekend. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. But, yeah, that Thursday fixture um, home to Ghent, I think, will be very much uh, a key deciding step in the right direction for David Moyes' job safety. So, Tom, the big result from the other 14 in the game we were most looking forward to was Aston Villa against Newcastle at Villa Park on the early kickoff on Saturday. Um, and as Gandhi once said, never trust the early kickoff. Uh, I think a lot of people were expecting Newcastle to not necessarily not necessarily win, but put up more of a fight. And the they were well and truly dominated and played out the game uh, by Aston Villa, who were absolutely tremendous. Um, and this just goes. This is now a hot run of form for them, isn't it? Um, and they're just turning over those wins point after point after point and they've climbed their way up the table quite remarkably under Unai Emery I think when Stephen Gerrard was in charge there was some concerns about 
possible relegation if they kept mm. sliding down the table. Yeah. Um, while Emery's just been the absolute polar opposite for them, hasn't he? And they've been truly remarkable uh, in their approach to football over the last couple of weeks. And their ta- their position in the table truly reflects that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ollie Watkins sort of masterclass over, over the weekend, you know, two goals and an assist. Villa were full of energy, full of life. Newcastle just simply did not know how to handle them. Um, I've already mentioned Newcastle, the fact that they just looked tired and off the pace and quite disjointed as opposed to what they did against United. But now Villa haven't lost since the 18th of February, which was a 4-2 home defeat to, um, at the time, and still the case, legally, the Arsenal. Um, and then since that game, uh, which was eight games ago, they've only conceded twice um, and they've had six clean sheets in that run. And Europe is very much a possibility now for them. Um, we look at, as you mentioned, Villa under Gerrard and Villa under Emery. The, the, the two, the, as far as I'm aware, they are just two completely different sides. Um, Emery has just come in and completely transformed them. Um, and I i don't think it's too out there to say that Villa fans at the start of the season under Gerrard, we're not expecting, say, European football um, or potentially competing uh, for European football. They were expecting probably mid-table um, and then, yeah, maybe potentially knocking on the door um, for one of like the Conference League spots or, or Europa League spot. Yeah, I, they are very much in the conversation now for what I would say, if results sort of go their way, they are now in a conversation for top four, I'd say. Um, I think top four's... It's probably out there as, as a stretch, yeah. but you can't not say where what's the table, what's the table right now. So, bit of sixth. Um, they are fifty points from thirty-one games. They're currently six points behind Newcastle. Yeah, uh, fifty-three points from th- and from thirty-one games. So three points behind Spurs. Who you'd still say Spurs are very much in that conversation for for top four. Mm. Uh, so why not Villa? I, I think that is fair. Um, to be honest, at the start of the season, when Aston Villa bought in their, their transfers, we maybe looked at them and thought, this is a team that are trying to kick on, because they spent quite a lot of money. They bought in Coutinho, they bought in Diego Carlos. Made that permanent, yeah. They bought in Dendonka, and we thought, okay, these are some serious moves from Aston Villa. And then it kind of, as you say, under under Gerard really petered out, and then Emery's had this time to build. And I think... I think it's a tremendous run from them. And I'm going to sound really negative here and say, will it run out of steam at some point? Because it's it's quite a lot. It's quite intense from this team that's not used to yep. be doing all this winning. I, I'm going to be... I'm going to th- throw one negative comment out there that their wins... Um, on this run. So in their last eight games, they've had seven wins, one draw. Yep. Their wins have been against Everton, a Vieira-led Palace, Bournemouth, who are mixed at best, Chelsea, Leicester, and Forest, which you would say are all obviously to to go on that run and keep winning those games is a great effort. You gotta be what's in front of you. Exactly. But you wouldn't say any of those teams are tremendous. 
apart from that win against Newcastle, where you would say that is a very, very good and like that is a really good strong win and that is a statement. The it's others, a, it's the a, others, it's, I'm it's, less that's convinced. It. By. That's the word. It's a statement win. Yeah, the others, like, I'm less convinced think... by as results. Wins can instill confidence and confidence can send you on these runs. And I think what that Newcastle win has done is very much it's typified what Villa are under Emery. And the fact I think it's saw some status, like I think since the World Cup, um, or maybe since the start of the new year, Villa are the team to beat. They are the form team. Um, you take sort of Arsenal and City out of it, they are that next team. Yeah. Um and he's just completely transformed them. Um, you, you sort of say since, um, obviously, the run that they've been on, um, but if we take like a deeper look at it, um, just basically comparing the two managerial records um, for the two managers that have managed uh, Aston Villa this year. So Villa under Gerrard were played 11-1-2, drawn three, lost six, uh, only scoring seven in those 11 games and conceding 16. Whereas under Unai Emery, they did have two games under a caretaker management sort of um, system um, between choosing the replacement. But Emery's got 18 games played, won 12, drawn twice and lost four, scoring 33 in that time and conceding 20. So it's completely changed under him. Um, and I, I think very much that Newcastle, I, it was just the manner in which Villa played that just makes me think this team is just full of confidence right now. Their run in consists of say Brentford away next then they've got Fulham um, then they go to Old Trafford then it's Wolves, Spurs, Liverpool and Brighton now I would say in that run they could at least pick up five wins for example let's say that Brentford and Fulham who are potentially sort of both on the beach even you know Brentford might consider themselves a little bit unlucky at the weekend United, whose form might start to be dipping slightly. Wolves, at that point in the season, might be safe. Spurs are very much Spursy at the moment. Liverpool, you don't know what they're going to be doing. And then Brian, who knows? So it's not, I don't think, against the realms of all possibility that Villa do some sort of magic run and end up in that top four position. I still think that Europe, though, I'm going to say it now, Villa finish in the top seven. Yeah, 100%. I don't disagree. I think Villa are, which is weird to say, considering where they were in the table, I would say 100% mm. they are a, they will get European football, um, which is a weird thing to say yeah. that when Emery took over, I, at the start of the well, season, when, when Gerard was sacked, Villa were 14th in the table. So for that turnaround yeah. to be as good as it was, I don't disagree. They will get European football. I think if they, if, it's really tight right now um, up there, that kind mm. of little battle between four, like the fifth, sixth, seventh spot. Um, Brighton, obviously, only one yeah. point behind them, but we'll have a couple of games in hand. It's yeah. And let's be honest, Liverpool are that bit further behind and they don't look like they're going to be pushing into that competition, um, like into that race. No. And if anything, Liverpool might take the approach of, is is the Conference League going to be any good for us? Shall we just sit out European football this season and focus on like rebuilding the structure of the team and the league campaign and not have to worry about midweeks? So personally, I'd I'd always welcome a European campaign. Okay, fair enough. Um 
but in which case um, I just I, think in terms yeah. of what's more likely Liverpool are those five points off of seventh spot now um yeah I, I think Villa are in the mix I don't I can fully anticipate next season us having Newcastle Villa and Brighton and then a strong maybe on West Ham all being in European football next season which would be which is crazy it's yeah. amazing um and absolutely crazy to think yeah, um, in terms of the push for Champions um, League, I just think almost, apart from their slightly... It could sour, very well be one step too yeah, far. But... I know. I, I just think my point of view at the moment is, apart from their slightly sour start to 2023, I think it'd be really harsh for Newcastle not to get Champions League football at this point. And unless oh, yeah. it's Man U trailing or... off even more, then, well, yeah, if we were to have Newcastle and Villa I... get Champions League football... Exactly. Absolutely hilarious. I'm all for that. Yeah. Um, I think that'd be brilliant. I'm not sure how that'd work though. If Manu, obviously, depending on results, went on to win the Europa League, though, I'm not sure how it all works out if they were to be knocked out. It's that confusing thing whether yeah. or not you get fired. Yeah. But either way, I think, yeah, I would love Newcastle and Villa to both be in there. I just think at the moment, my kind of heart is pulling more towards I would like to see Newcastle there. And also the Europa League is very much Unai Emery's competition and that would, could potentially bring back European silver, European silverware yep. to Villa Park. Which, which has been a long time. Be, yeah, long time, long time in the making. Long time in the making. Well, well, actually, short time in the making, but long time you that you're waiting to, for. Yeah, you don't yeah. include the Intertotal, are you? I, I, I quite like the Intertoto Cup, so... Yeah, no, we won't go. Um, because um, it means West Ham have won something. <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I of, do get. I yeah, do get. One of, yeah, one of the things I did want to point out was the the man in form at the moment for Villa, and that's Ollie Watkins. Um, he has been outrageously good. Um, in these sort of what is it like an eight game scoring run now or it's, something seven it's or eight games like that. Um, I have to say, I'm all for this run because I've pretty much had him in my fantasy team the whole time. Um, but looking at Ollie Watkins so far, um, well, for the last couple of games, he has, in the most recent game, he beat, uh, he got two goals and one assist against Newcastle, a man of the match performance. Week before, scored against Forrest in the 2-0 there. Week before that, um, he scored against Leicester in the 2-1 win. Week before that, scored against Chelsea in their 2-0 win at Stamford Bridge. Week before that, he only got an assist. Oh. Um, but yeah, go, going back to his hot runner form has pretty much been since the 21st of January, where there's only been one game, one week where he hasn't delivered either a goal or an assist. Yeah, it, it's such a rich vein of form. And, you know, you, I'm just looking at the comparisons between um, this season and last season. Last season, he finished after 35 games with 11 goals and two assists. And this year, after 30 prints, he has 14 and six assists, which I think is matching his return from a couple of seasons ago, um, shortly after he made that move over from Brentford. Um, but the six assists, well, I think goes down as one of his best returns. Um, but the one thing I did actually want to point out is just the difference between, and I know we've sort of said it off camera, but um, the fact that the difference between him under Gerard and him under Emery, I don't know whether there's a mixture of Emery is just completely unlocked this new side of him or Gerard just had absolutely no clue about how to, how to manage him whatsoever. But Watkins under Gerard was 11 games, 
Uh, 10 of those are starts, one substitute appearance, one goal and two assists. Watkins under Emery, 18 games played, 12 goals and four assists, all of them from the starting lineup, um, yeah. which just goes to show his, his attacking return since Emery's come in has just completely transformed and has been part and parcel, I think, or partially responsible for this sudden upturn. Um, in performances from Aston Villa. Um, you also look at sort of like his attacking stats in comparison with last season as well. Everything is basically up. Goals are up. Goals per match are up. Minutes per goal are up. Um, shots on target, shots off target, shooting accuracy, shooting success. He's becoming such a more, fin- I'd say more finessed finisher and he's becoming with experience an absolutely dangerous Premier League striker. Yeah, I, I think his transformation has very much led this. He seems stronger as well. He seems as though yeah. he bulked up a bit. Yeah, he just seems to be reading the game really well. Even mm. in even in their run of three losses um, at the start of Emery's tenure, um, he scored in all, all three of them. I'm going to make a bit of a... One of the sort of statements that I don't really think is backed much in stats, but it just is a vibe I'm getting. I don't think Steven Gerrard really knows how to manage forwards and he's never really, and I think that maybe feeds back to his time at Liverpool because when he obviously came to came to Villa, he had Danny Ings who was a bit of a natural finisher and kind of yeah. used him for a while. And before that, um, and then obviously hasn't didn't get them as much as possible at Watkins. Before that, he was at Rangers, and the main striker there being Morelos. Yeah, I don't think anyone tells Morelos what to do. He's a bit of a rogue. He's a bit he? of a rogue. I think he just goes out there and you just kind of go, I'll just do, kind of do what you want. I don't think there's really much like tactical influence there. Yeah, he's all um, like, yeah, and the then ball that go- sees the red towel. And then going to his time at Liverpool, obviously not manager, but captain and like oh, being God, heavily no, involved no. in stuff. Well, the strikers were two of the most naturally gifted forwards that we've ever seen in the Premier League in Luis Suarez and Fernando Torres. Yep. And then before that, Michael Owen, Robbie Fowler. They've just been... Don't the... forget David and Go. <laughs> yeah, and but he didn't perform. In. That's my point. Gerard didn't know. But I'm not saying he was necessarily involved on that level. But I'm yeah. just saying in terms of is there kind of... He's always been surrounded by strikers that just kind of get on with the job. Yeah, and therefore they've not needed much of his energy and focus. I um, I, I, I don't like to say because I've, I've obviously I've got such a, a strong affinity for for Steven Gerrard, um, but there's I think there's a reason why since his departure. So you know the amount of other fourteen teams that have been in sort of in need of new managers throughout the remainder of the season. I think there's a reason why he's not really been mentioned or been close to taking up the reins at another club. He's not been linked at all, has he? It's not not like, really. The fact that the likes of Jesse Marsh has been linked ahead of him, yeah, is obviously like Rogers goes, and then immediately it's Graham Potter, not Stephen Gerrard. You know, there's I think there's a reason why. Um, I think unfortunately, I, I don't think the Premier League is quite Stephen Gerrard level. Yeah, and don't go wrong. Maybe he'll learn, maybe he'll develop, maybe he'll yeah. change. Um, I just think it's obviously a slow kind of... Yeah. But in mind, he was shooed, like almost like touted to be, oh, well, when Cop leaves Liverpool, he'll go there. And, Please, no. And, and that's what I was going to say as a Liverpool fan. Uh, as, a, as a fan of not Liverpool, I think it'd be bloody brilliant. Okay, um, no. <laughs> but yeah, I just think it's one of those that maybe he's not as 
full of dimensions as a coach that he perhaps needs to. He doesn't have enough tools in his armory to maybe deal with these sorts of players. Um, even when they did have bright sparks last season, I think there's an element of relying on the likes of uh, Coutinho to... But once again, a player that you kind of just go, go out there, Felipe, and do your stuff. And maybe he's, he has not that, done that this year. Exactly. And maybe that's maybe potentially Gerald is more of that kind of man management yeah. style rather than an actual tactical coach, which yeah. you very much associate which you associate Emery with being is yeah. very, very good tactically. And we saw that at the weekend, the way that well, Villa were absolutely yeah. all over Newcastle. I mean, even like the, the informed managers, you, you look at the likes of Emery, you look at the likes of Howe, you look at the likes of Frank, um, the likes of, there's probably someone I've missed, um, De Zerbi, of course. Um, mm-hmm. You just think these guys know how to tactically manage games. They know how to set up their teams. Their, their teams have identities. Um, I, don't, I don't know how this is only coming to an absolute Stephen Gerrard bashing, but we're going there. Um yeah. Well, it, the thing is, it's really hard. We're not talking about Villa, aren't we? So, yeah. When we're talking about Villa, it's not necessarily hard. It's not difficult to start having a game because you yeah. just look at comparing the form of Villa, which is the same group of players. It's not like Emery went and bought in a load of players in in January. He bought in what? Alex Moreno at left back. Yeah. Uh, bought in Traore back from loan, which yeah. Gerard could have used him, chose not to. But yeah, the, the crux of the team is effectively the same as what Stephen had. Yeah. And you kind of think, wow, what have you, what have you done? Yeah. What what have you done so differently to make things look so much better? Because yeah, we're talking about from very early on, could Gerard go? Villa performances aren't good enough. To now suddenly, it's the fact that we're talking about Villa potentially pushing and being knocking on the door of Champions League football is startling. It's like, a stark change. Hmm. So you do have to think what what went on. Is Gerard actually? Obviously, Gerard isn't ready for the league, but it just goes to show how good also Emery has been because mm. the Villa squad is good. They're a good squad. Obviously, got a tremendous goal scorer in Watkins, but comparing to squads around them, the likes of Brighton, you wouldn't say that their squad as a whole is that much better, maybe a bit more established in terms of people know them, but like kind of the performances they're delivering compared to like teams in the table, yeah, you, you'd. I'm not saying they're punching, but they're all doing very well for the players that they ha- they do have. Um, because you wouldn't say, oh, they've got the sixth best squad in the table. No, and I think this is the thing that Villa fans were very much sort of been sort of frustrated with over the last sort of couple of seasons under the likes of Stephen Gerrard and Dean Smith. The fact that they do have on paper a very solid Premier League squad, yet they were seriously underperforming over the last sort of year and a half, hmm. or since. Yeah, like, and the, well, uh, and the combination after their first after their first season of like return to, uh, to Premier League football. Yeah, and the combination of spending all that Grealish money and not getting a huge amount of return on it yeah. um, is tough. But yeah, I think looking at the future for Aston Villa, European football is very much on the horizon. Um, I suppose it's just a case of at what level and whether Emery can work his magic for a really strong European campaign next yeah, season. exactly. And I think one of the things, actually, I'll, I'll throw a question out there, but it might be something that we can do later on in, in, in the season. In terms of the new managers that are come in, arguably, I think Emery has been the most impressive. To be honest, I think... The only other names that I can think of are the Zerbi and Gary O'Neill. Yeah, I agree with you on both of those. I think they're probably the best three in terms of what's come in. 
but at the same time, there's been a lot of rubbish that's come come oh. in as well. But yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, I think you're right in terms of their absolute turnaround. It's hard not. It would be really hard to look past um, Emery, particularly when you also then look at being like, oh, when Wolves appointed Lopetegui, you're going, well, Lopetegui, Emery, kind of similar standard of manager. Yeah. And obviously, Emery has been able to develop um, tremendously. Tom, we've spoken about a lot of the results so far this game week, um, and a lot of them being absolutely goal-filled from the other 14. So could you tell me who are the contenders for your goal of the week? Goal of the week. So this week's goal of the week, I've got, at the moment, um, six uh, on my shortlist. Um, obviously, we still have the small matter of the Monday Night Football game at the time recording to play. That's Leeds against Liverpool. Um, so with Liverpool's array record, Leeds could very much be scoring some goals tonight. Um, but on my shortlist, as of the moment, we have Ollie Watkins' first goal against Newcastle. It was a good first touch and spin and just simply rolled it past Pope, who had, up to that point, was basically keeping Newcastle as best as he could in the game. Um, but that was effectively, I think, the goal that sort of killed it off as a contest. Um, then we've got Eze, who was simply outstanding against Southampton. Um, we mentioned the likes of Michael Elisa the, the, the week before with his hat-trick of assists. Eze could have easily got a hat-trick in this game as well. Uh, it was very unlucky not to with his free kick. Uh, that literally just skimmed the post. But his second goal against um, Southampton was a low drive from 25 yards uh, after weaving through a couple of players. So a lovely little finish from him. Uh, and then I've got Enciso against Chelsea. Um, and like, what was it, last week? Who, I can't remember who's got goal of the week last week. Um, however, uh, I have one, um, one little note uh, for Enciso's goal against Chelsea. Thunder bastard. He does absolutely put his foot through it. It's a, one absolutely, of those absolutely you know, tremendous goals. Lovely little finish, that. Um, and was a nice way for Brian to basically round off that game to pick up the three points. And last and week, just... sorry, just to jump in, last week's goal of the week was the Wolves volley. Oh, it was, must have been the week before. And once again, against Chelsea. Oh, it was against Chelsea? Yeah. I wonder how many we've got this week that, uh, over, the, over the course of the season that have been against Chelsea. <laughs> we can go through and look at the tapes for sure. Um, yeah, moving on then, I've got uh, Dwight McNeils against Fulham, he picks the ball up on the on the turn and uh, runs or surges towards the box, uh, surrounded by I think at least like three Fulham defenders, uh, and then just strikes on the edge of the area past Leno, who also up to that point had quite a good game. Unfortunately, he won't be winning goal of the week because Fulham Fulham did pick up the three points in that game. Um, and then I've got Taras against Spurs, um, simply limbs last minute winner. Who doesn't love a last minute winner at the very end of a game? Um, which was very much an end-to-end game as well. Um, and giving Bournemouth all the points, um, I've got written down, uh, as I've already mentioned, this um, this pod so far, goal that potentially keeps them up. Um, I do love a last-minute winner. Um, and then I've got uh, Jared Bones against Arsenal. Uh, from the throw, Arsenal clear, but then Kara basically just lobs one back in and Bowen plays the offside trap to perfection um, and literally just bounces it home. Uh, I'm uh, not sure whether the same phrase lob one back in is I don't know whether that does it just it's a it's a really good ball in terms of he just like lifts it over the top it just... kind of yeah, but 
I, I get like a little, mean, little wedge. He does kind of lob it over. Yeah, a little wedge of a chippy shot. Um, yeah. And Bowen's the only one who's reading it and running forward with it. And yeah. The defence is all pushing. And yeah, um, obviously Ramsdale got a tiny bit of a hand to it, but a cr- tremendous half volley, the pace he put on it. No, yeah. he, Ramsdale was never going to stop it. That's the um, time. Yeah, nice little finish. One goal I don't think you have mentioned is Dan probably... James's goal against Everton. See, I, I was thinking Dan James. However... However, on my first viewing, I thought, fantastic touch, turn, finish. But he doesn't control it first time and it comes off Michael Kane. That's why. Oh, is it? Because to me... He fell so luckily to him. Because to me, it looks like Tarkovsky and Kane make Dan James look like prime Dennis Bergkamp in that Netherlands shirt where he, like, the ball over the top and he pulls it back tremendously. And that's the way it looked like it, that yeah. James absolutely sells them with a tremendous touch and then puts it past Pickford. Is it really the case? Does, does it come off of Keane? I hate to break it to you. It looks as though it bounces off Keane. So he I'm completely... Gonna, I'm going to be Dan really James harsh completely... and say, can Dan... Like Dan James is... I feel he's really unfortunate because he lacks that kind of cutting edge. And if he just had that, he would have been a success at Man U. I'll semi, yeah, semi-include it on the shortlist just because on first viewing, I thought that was an outrageous goal. Sort of picks it up first time after what could only, I think I'm trying to remember where the ball was sort of passed in from. It must have been like it was, it was a long, halfway. It was, a, it was almost like a long straight ball, wasn't it? There wasn't much angle on it because I suppose the approach and, for Dan James is he yeah. a pace merchant, just put him over the top and see what happens. Picks it up on the edge of the box. He cuts in onto his left and then places it past Pickford. Um, just unfortunately misses it with that first touch and then it bounces off Keane and it just drops in front of, of Dan James. Um, yeah, when I first saw it, I was like, that's outrageous. And then I just sort of like looked at it again. I was like, hang on a minute. Let me delve a little bit deeper. And I do think, it, yeah, it takes a bit of a touch off Michael Caine. Um, so. Well, that that's a shame. Um, because I, I hate to break it to you. It, it looked really good from the it first did look, week. It right? looked really, really good. Oh, well, uh, well, bless, bless Dan James. Maybe another yeah. week he can. Saying that, I do really like Dwight McNeil's goal from that game. A classic kind of Dwight McNeil edge of the box pile driver. Like it's just like he was surrounded. He was just surrounded. Yeah, he just, but he's done that. He's pulled up. Pulled, yeah. He's pulled out a couple of goals for Everton since joining them, and particularly under Dyche, where he's uh, edge of the box and just hit them really low and hard. It yeah. seems to be a little bit of a knack for him. Um, yeah, Leno had which no is, chance with that. Yeah, absolutely no chance from Leno. Obviously, uh, wasn't wasn't a for a winning team, so it cannot be considered. Yeah. Um, in the slightest, but I think this week there are some really good efforts that um, deserve recognition. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I, I am I am one I am one for a thunder bastard though. So my goal of the week does go to inside. So I like it because it's against the big six. Um, and yeah. I, I know it feels a bit samey samey, but I just I, I just love that it. Was a really goal. good hit. I think maybe technically Jared Bones is as good as any of the others because it's a bouncing like he hits it on the half volley. So yeah. first time half volley. I just think is a really good and well taken hit, but I, I, the spectacle of Nzaiso's was uh, I fully rate, and I think is a very deserved goal of the week. Yeah, I think the, the, the other thing was like yeah, Nzaiso was against in a winning effort against the big six. My sound went too far away from beating Arsenal no, though no, towards no, the no, end. No, they, no, it got no, very no. close, but um, yeah, I think yeah, very deserved win and. Uh, God, Chelsea, start learning how to defend against class goals, will you? It's getting a bit boring. Kepa loves to concede from outside the box. 
So, Tom, last week I had what uh, some people have described as an extremely dominant performance in the Fab Four contest. Uh, this is the competition that pitches our score prediction skills against one another. Um, you've come back with a little bit of a vengeance, though. I uh, cruised to uh, what was a seven-point lead, but uh, you've cut that down significantly with a, a good outing for yourself. I've had a very good week this race, I think. Yeah, yeah. I um, to be honest, I was doubtful of looking at the results that we predicted. So Villa Newcastle, you went for the Villa win, which is a great shout. I thought Newcastle would represent a bit more. Um, but I mean, so did I. To be fair, those two early goals I needed from, the result. Yeah, those two early goals from Villa were fairly decisive. Um, but you went for the 2-1 Villa win, which saw yourself get a point out of the game. And then Southampton against Palace. We both knew that Southampton have pretty much nothing and that Palace are performing pretty phenomenally, to be honest. Three wins from three. Um, now, with that result, it was just the margin of win. I thought they would keep up the free scoring Um we then go for three goals again, but you went for the 2-0 win and got all three points from that, which was yeah. uh, quite tremendous. And then they're not so good from us this week. So we saw we this saw good, Fulham being well and truly on the beach. Like their form has kind their car their form has pretty much reflected that, hasn't it? They were what five yeah. losses on the bounce and then and maybe yeah. Daishi's. Apologies men- to Richard Osmond. Daishi's meant a bit hungrier for the result, I think, is what we were. Uh, we yeah, that might be the case. Um, but the uh, the Brexit ball didn't come good for them. Um, no, and well, you saw it as being a, a classic Daish one nil. I thought it'd be a two nil, but Fulham proved us wrong in quite a staggering way by winning three one in that game. And then the final game, um, I suppose it's another one where we didn't really see this being Brentford, did we? We didn't see them being on the beach this much. They were contesting for European football and then it, I, everything's dropped off a little bit. And... I'll tell you, Wolves played well. I just think two very scrappy goals. Like, I don't think Diogo Costa is anywhere aware of the goal that the um, the ball sort of coming back to him um, and then Huang's just sort of magically appeared in front of him just to tap it home. So, I think it was yeah. The, go- the goals from Wolves were there was an element of fortune about both yeah. for sure. Um, but I suppose it's that Brentford cut, they were so defensively tight and strong with a level of cutting edge going forwards, and it seems to have blunted a little bit, doesn't mm. it? It's five games without a win off Brentford, yeah, which is really significant. You kind of look at, as we said earlier, that West London block of uh, Chelsea, Brentford, and Fulham, they don't have anything else to compete for yeah. for this season. They're all on the beach. They're all on their holidays. And now if you're one of those teams, while you go back a couple of months, if you were one of those teams down in the bottom nine and you thought, and you were coming up against Brentford, you thought, I'm not getting any points here. I'm not getting a result. But now if you're one of those teams in the bottom nine and you've got a game against Brentford, you suddenly start to fancy yourself, don't you? I think so a little bit, um, which is a shame. It is, because I think we were ranting and raving about Thomas Frank, and I don't think anything should be taken away from the season that they've had. It's just the way it's tapered out a little bit is probably... 
It's just a little disappointing, isn't yeah. it? I think the whole Tony situation might have just taken a little bit of the gloss off, but nothing should be taken away from Brentford. But obviously, neither of us got any points for that game uh, with Ooh. us both having the Brentford win. Wolves, two unlikely goal scorers in both uh, Costa and Huang, who neither have particularly been in the goals in the slightest. Um, it's been well, Costa's first goal for Wolves. Exactly, and I don't think Huang's really put in much of a shift uh, this season either. No. Um, but that those couple of points, your four points, puts you on to 46 points and... That singular point for me puts me onto 50. So I've just reached my half century, um, which, is, which is something only people can dream of and uh, doesn't come easy to many people. Before we go on to talk about our next week predictions, Tom, can you please tell us what games we have to look forward to in the upcoming game week? So the upcoming game week, we can look forward to, we've got Friday night football uh, at the Emirates. That's Arsenal against Southampton. And then the early lunchtime kickoff uh, on the Saturday sees Fulham go up against Leeds United. Obviously, we've got a few FA Cup postponements uh, in this game week as well. Um, but after that, at the beginning of the three o'clock, we have Crystal Palace taking on Everton. We have Liverpool at home to Nottingham Forest. It's Brentford versus Aston Villa. And then it's Leicester City against Wolves. And then the Super Sunday sees Newcastle go up against Tottenham. And it's AFC Bournemouth at home at the Vitality to West Ham United. We've also got some midweek fixtures coming up in the following week. We have Wolves against Crystal Palace, Aston Villa against Fulham, Leeds against Leicester. That's on the Tuesday. And then on the Wednesday, sees Nottingham Forest going up against Brighton, Chelsea at home to Brentford, West Ham at home to Liverpool. Uh, and then Thursday, sees Everton playing host to Newcastle, Southampton at home in a South Coast derby against Bournemouth. Well, some very, very interesting fixtures there, which, um, well, will be quite influential for the relegation battle for sure for the other 14 and those kind of battles for European football next season. Um, I suppose the other thing we need to mention going into the next couple of days is West Ham do have that second leg at home to yank in the Conference League Um which is at the London Stadium, so good luck to West Ham. But anyway, back to the Fab Four. We have a, uh, well, we currently have on the docket for us to predict, firstly, Fulham v Leeds. So this is a Leeds team that have been quite far from uh, competent over recent Dan James Derby. Well, it is the Dan James Derby, isn't it? And then Fulham, which who we thought were well and truly on the beach, um, have then turned it round, haven't they? Quite significantly. Fulham Leeds, a difficult one to predict, just purely because I was going to always going to put this down as a, as a Leeds sort of potential sort of smash and grab. Um, Leeds do score. Oh, well, I'm expecting Leeds to score anyway, um, but I just don't know after that Everton result how which sort of Fulham side are going to show up them being at home is probably going to be quite key and that leads away from home have been fantastic um, but I can't at the moment I can't split the two sides because I'm I'm going to go for a one all draw so I think Leeds have been re- their away form has been really shaky and this is an, yep. but this is an away game on the back of three home fixtures which have been a mixed bag to be honest obviously beating Forest but then losing to Palace in such a disastrous manner um yeah away from home recently losses to arsenal but then randomly beating wolves yeah um 
to be honest, it's really hard to see beyond a Fulham win for me. So I'm going to say it's going to be a copy of their FA Cup fifth round result and go a 2-0 to Fulham. Oh, I forgot about that. And then we have... Um, oh, who's played for both that we could have here as a as a derby? There, there must have been a couple of players. Who's played for both Palace and Everton? Um, Yannick Balassi. Oh, Yannick Balassi derby. What a player. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we've got the Yannick Balassi derby. Who would have thought he'd be coming up in this podcast? I know. So, I didn't. Um, so, Yannick Balassi derby. Palace are just on that run. Can they make it four from four? And this is what is... It's one of those that I almost want to go Everton for the 1-0. I don't because, think the 1-0. But it's kind of... It's got snatch and grab written all over it. But... Palace now to score now. But you're stupid if you don't put Palace down for all three points because they are playing tremendously good football and they just keep scoring. Oh, I'm going to go early. I'm going to say it's going to be a 3-0 Palace and they're just going to keep it up. 3 nil. 3-0, they'll be safe after this game. I, I do think Palace will win this game, but although I think... Deitch will have had words um, with these guys after the uh, after the Saturday result because I think there was very much sort of not with discontent amongst the ranks, but I think it was showing signs of frustration with the manner in some of the goals that they conceded, especially the Harrison Reed goal. You could just tell there was a bit of annoyance between that back four. Um, but you know, all is Everton just can't seem to go. Actually, that was another thing. I don't know what the Everton sort of likelihood of going back to back is because I don't think they've done that under Deitch uh, off the top of my head. Um, but I, I, I think going to Selhurst will be very difficult for them. Um, I don't think it'll. What did you say? 3 0? I said 3 0 to Palace. I don't think it'll be that stark. Um, but. I don't know. They lost. They, Everton lost. I'll go for Fulham, I'll go for Fulham aren't the aggressive team that Palace I'll go are. for another 3 1. I think a three-one. Yeah, and he's okay. Sure. I, 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 I think it will be it will be a close game all the way throughout, and it will be probably two-one for the majority of the, of the time for Fulham, uh, for Fulham, for for Crystal Palace, and then Everton will try and grab that that equaliser, and then they'll open up at the back, and I don't know, Eze scores. It it will be a, th- a three-one win, but not a three-one on paper. Okay. Fair enough. And then we have Leicester v Wolves, somewhat of a uh, localish derby with both teams hovering around in that kind of area that no one really knows that well about geography-wise. So Leicester, who have been... It's really hard to describe Leicester, isn't it, of recent, other than they've been rubbish and they've made an uninspiring management appointment. And they're against a Wolves who have been up and down like a yo-yo in terms of form. Um, I don't know how to call this one in the slightest. No, this is uh, this is very difficult. Um, the uh, in the Richard Stearman derby. Um, how to put this one down? Leicester looked bereft of ideas in the City game at the weekend. Although it is City at the Etihad, it's always going to be a tough game. 
Um, although City did very much take their foot off the gas um, and Leicester tried to force their way back into it. But we're just, I think, in, in actual goal, sort of funny, just sort of popped to it. And he's just like, well, I'm just going to put this into the back of the net. Thank you very much. Um, but I, I just don't fancy Leicester at all. Uh, they just don't inspire me at the moment. I don't think Dean Smith inspires me any sort of confidence. I think Wolves, you know what? I, I think Wolves are very sort of consistent and consistent at the moment. They've picked up the three points last weekend. I don't expect them to go back to back. So I'm going to go for a one all draw. A one one draw. See, I agree with you. I think the Dean Smith appointment is completely uninspiring, but he did do some bits with his previous teams. Small bits, but still bits. Um, I have looking at the table I just want things to be stirred up a little bit more. Okay. If Leicester were to win this, it would be really interesting. Wouldn't oh, it? Yeah, 100%. If Leicester were to then go and be on 28 points that suddenly spices it, because I think Southampton are far enough adrift now that it's going to be really hard for them, but a Leicester win would make things really interesting. So I'm going to say Leicester are going to win, just purely on the fact that I want the drama fuel, and I'm going to say 2-0 Leicester. Don't think that's a bad shout. I just... Leicester just, I just uninspiring, and I just can't, I can't I know, see but it in my got head, players, but... The thing is... If you look at the team, they've got Madison, they've got Barnes, they've got Ian Nacho, they've got Perez. I don't Madison's know been off the pace. Look, he got the assist the other week. Just at the wrong end. Um, yeah. still, still goal. <laughs> Besides the point. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so yeah. I, I just, I don't see it, but I almost want it to happen because it'll spice things up a little bit. No, I, I'm all for the sort of like the shit stirry. Yeah. And then finally, we have the junior Stanislas derby with Bournemouth v West Ham. Um, I feel there's like a mini competition between us naming the most rogue player that's played for both yeah. teams when doing these fixtures. So, Junior Stanislas Derby, we have Bournemouth at home to West Ham. I don't get me wrong, I think both teams are safe. I think it's just the case that obviously Bournemouth do have that two points ahead of West Ham at the moment. But I think realistically, this is kind of that tipping point for either team that they win this and then that's. That's then pretty much done. Um, yeah. So there's almost a lot of the lot on the line here. West Ham would have played midweek after a tough game. It's not going to be easy for David Moyes' men. No. But I think if they would to, I think if they run on that bounce of oh we get through to a European semi final, they might just be running on a bit of happy juice going into the the weekend fixture, a Sunday fixture, um, and. Surely, Bournemouth don't go back to back. They can't do three in a row. Surely, and they go back to back to back. That's the one thing I, I, I touch wood. I just really don't see back to back to back happening. No. So, I'm going to be confident in saying I think a West Ham win, and I'm going to say it will be a. 1-0 snatch and grab win for West Ham. Okie doke. What was the score in these this fixture early on in the season? I think the reverse fixture at the London Stadium was a was it 2-0 West Ham? It was a 2-0 West Ham win with goals from Kurt Zuma and a penalty from Saeed Ben Rama. 
I think if I remember your notes from that game, particularly saying it was a very uninspiring performance from Bournemouth. Um, true, but uh, upon reflection, it's probably a somewhat uninspiring performance yeah. from West Ham as well, um, because there's been lots of them. Um, I I go down your your route of thinking, um, especially if they, you know, very very big one of the you know, especially this season, West Ham's biggest game, um, second leg of a quarter final in, in a European competition on a Thursday. I think, conversely to what you say, that they'll be in a bit of a hype. They do get through that that will mean a bit of a downturn in performance on the Sunday or if they don't get through then it'll just be depression and just well again the performance won't match um, or it will match um, the, the way they're feeling um, Bournemouth at the moment are on a path of taking revenge to teams that have beaten them earlier on the season so Spurs Liverpool um could it be West Ham as well to join that run? Um, I'm sort of thinking that way. I do think it will be a close game, and I think West Ham will sort of show up um, in a put in a better performance than they have done on the road. Um, but I fancy you say better performance to... on the road. They they won their last game against uh, Fulham one nil on the road. Okay, one game. And uh, before that, I can't remember the last time they got point. Hang on, there we go. Let's do st- statistical backup. Okay. Um, uh, of so one game. Very, very. Uh... They they beat um, AK Larnaca 2 0 away from home. They... So, yeah, Iron Upper away. <laughs> they drew 1 0 at St. James's Park. This is going back to February, though. Okay, um, they, right. They beat Derby 2 0 in the FA Cup on the 30th of January. <laughs> um, they... Fantastic away form. They beat Brentford 1 0 in January. Other than that, right? Um, yeah, so it, it's not great, is it? Um, so there are better, there are teams with better away form. I will give no, you that. But I, I, I think West Ham seem to grow. That it's, I think, of the last couple of weeks, like two steps forward, one step back for West Ham. Um, but in that, I do think it'll be a close game. But I, I think Bournemouth on that sort of revenge run of, of late might make it three wins in a row. There have been three wins in four. I think I'm thinking they're going on the, one of those sort of like end of season runs to like grab yourself away from relegation. So I'm going to go for a Bournemouth two West Ham one result. Oh, three in a row. I just it sounds really weird. I just don't. I, I, I know. No, I know. I a think win, you're right. A win for either team would be remarkable for it's, the four it's a win in your for safe. both of them because yeah. yeah, if West Ham were to win, that would be three wins in five, and match yeah. uh, match Bournemouth three wins in five. Um, yeah. Entry to 23-24 is up for grabs for one of these two teams as they win. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think it's a really good opportunity. I think I think if they David Moore is very much turning around, it, say West Ham weren't to win, weren't to go through in Europe midweek, which would be a bit of a surprise. Um, I don't know, Genk aren't a bad team. I don't want to write them off. But surely the statement to those players is, Work your absolute ass off this Sunday, and you'll be playing in the Premier League next season. Like yes. that—that that is the statement there, right? Given the, particularly as all the teams below them would have played beforehand, everyone yeah. else has played their game. You know, you know what the bar is. Yeah, so yeah. I think I, I don't think you're wrong. I'm just yeah, no, I think it's it'll uh, be an it, interesting fixture. I think all results. One of the cards. harder ones to predict. Of, yeah, well, actually, it's not like we get them all right, but they're all hard no. to predict, aren't they? They're, they're all very hard to predict. Mm. 
but I, I think a good run of Fab Four fixtures there we have predicted. Um, but only time will tell with this, and we will check back in with our Fab Four predictions on next week's episode. And with that, we are at the end of this episode of the Other 14 podcast. Tom, thank you for joining me on this week's episode. You're welcome. And thank you to everyone for downloading and listening to this week's pod. Please subscribe to us and give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Also, do recommend us to your friends, family and other 14 fans. So, it is a goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from me. And we will see you next week on the Other 14 podcast.